Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. That's a Texas thing, by the way. We've got some visitors down front here from Spokane, so I thought I'd just explain that. I'd like to welcome you also to Christ Community Bible Church, where we are about trusting God or trusting Christ and treasuring Christ in all things. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Rich Kasky. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community. And I'd like to welcome you again and tell you we're glad that you're here. And if you have a copy of God's Word, please open it to Titus chapter 2, where Charles was reading this morning. And we are going to be in the book of Titus again today. We have been going through the book of Titus, and we're in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes godly living, and he calls out different groups of people. And he starts with older men, and then he goes to older women to younger women and now to younger men. And that is the portion that I get to preach uh, this morning, which I'm glad because uh, I'm glad Jared took those other ones because uh, I would not want to stand here and say we have older women in the church. And I would say, I don't know who we're preaching to on that, but we'll go through it because it's in the text. So Jared took that. So we will, I will be relieved that I don't have to deal with that. But uh, at Christ Community, we are a Bible church, which means we put great emphasis on the ministry of the Word. In other words, we highly value Scripture and the teaching of Scripture and all that we do. Now, this is not an end to itself. We're not here to puff up in knowledge. But we are also committed to the great commission given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so while we do engage this morning in fellowship, singing, prayer, public reading of God's word, and the preaching of God's word, we also want to be about evangelism and reaching the lost. You see, we are part of the great commission. We are part of that great mission that God the Father has set forth from before time began to reach the world. So before I go on any further, let me pray for our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. That is, we want to display and proclaim your greatness to the world. We want to affirm your wonderful truths, extol your incomparable virtues, and declare our love for you. Yet, Father, we are a people of weakness, wearied and fatigued by the many trials of life. We know we need this time of fellowship and worship. But even though our spirits are willing, far too often our flesh is weak. So, Father, please give us this morning ears to hear, eyes to see the marvelous truths of your word. Make our hearts attentive to what you prepared for us and give us a sense of urgency to hear from you and to be about the Great Commission. Open our eyes, dear Lord, to behold the wonderful things in your word. Would it be to us more desirable than gold? Yes, even much fine gold and sweeter to us than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. May it revive our souls and cause our hearts to rejoice. Oh, Father, help me this morning to preach your truth so that lives would be changed by it. Grant us, even this morning, to be transformed by your righteous word for the glory of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we've been in the book of Titus, and we've been studying that, and we call it a book, but it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul 
to a young pastor named Titus who was living on the island of Crete. Now, the island of Crete itself, it's about 100 miles south of the mainland of Greece. It's in the Aegean Sea. The heyday of Crete, we have to go all the way back to about 1800 B.C. That's about the time when the Israelites were being enslaved in the land of Egypt. The inhabitants on Crete were known as Minoans. Now, fast forward to about 1500 B.C., add in a volcano, a tsunami, and the Mycenaeans, and the heyday of the Minoans was over, and Crete never did regain its glory. In fact, it was known for all kinds of violence and sexual promiscuity. The Cretans had centuries of Greek mythology they had greatly in, that had greatly influenced their culture. They were such lying, self-indulgent, sexually promiscuous people that, the, that Cretan was a word to describe anyone who behaved like that. And on top of that, the men were violent, often serving as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. And the Cretan women shrugged off marriage and regular responsibilities to be sexually permissive and as self-indulgent as the men were. Yet, by the very grace of God, there were Cretans in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they heard the Apostle Peter preach his sermon that day. The gospel was brought back to Crete, and small churches were established. However, they resembled the local Cretan culture more than the transformed lives of a follower of Jesus Christ. In the midst of this, Paul sends Titus, his trusted young man, and he tells him to put all things on order in Crete. But how do you put a church in order? What must Titus do? Paul had a basic plan. One, appoint godly leaders. Two, oppose false teachers. Three, teach sound doctrine. Four, rely on the grace of God and the gospel promise. And five, be about good works and hold to unity. This is the Lord's prescription for a healthy church. If Titus wanted to transform the church and the island of Crete, he had to hold to and live by these principles for a healthy church. We need healthy churches to win the lost and to fulfill the Great Commission. And even though the church in general agrees on that mission, that is the Great Commission and what we're all to be about, it does not always agree on how to accomplish it. We sometimes get confused on how we are to evangelize and to reach the lost. Instead of following scripture, we attempt other means to reach the lost in the world, or we abandon the mission altogether. We're unsure how we are to relate to this world. Too often Christians try to become like the world to reach the world. So what we do is create Christian counterparts to every worldly attraction that's out there. But the idea of imitating the world to win the world doesn't come from Scripture. In fact, James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if we shouldn't become like the world to win the world, what should we do? What is our platform to speak the truth of the gospel to a fallen world? And how do we win the attention of sinners 
so that they will at least listen to our message? I think we find that answer in the Gospel of Matthew. The words of Christ himself, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our platform to speak the truth of the gospel to to a fallen world is a virtuous life. The greatest and most powerful tool we have for evangelism is a transformed life. I like what John MacArthur says in one of his sermons. To convince a man God can save, I need to show him a man he saved. To convince a man that God can give hope, I need to show him a man with hope. To convince a man that God can give peace, joy, and love, I need to show him a man with peace, joy, and love. To convince a man that God can give complete, total and utter satisfaction. I need to show him a satisfied man. This is what Paul is telling Titus. Godly living is your platform to preach the gospel and to reach the lost. So, so far in chapter 2, Paul addressed older men, older women, younger women, and now young men. We are all called to godly living. We must present a clear message concerning sin, judgment, grace, repentance, and faith, but our message is made believable by our lives or not so believable by our lives. We will also notice that in these descriptions that we've seen so far in chapter 2, there are contrasts to the false teachers that are listed in chapter 1. Let me read those verses. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So here is what Paul has to say to young men. And oh, as a reminder, the term young men refers to pretty much teenagers. Now, Jared would say up to age 50. John MacArthur says 60. I'll split the difference, 55, so I'm still a young man. But but this is quite a range of, of, of ages for young men. This is what was written for you. Pay attention to this. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all aspects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now we can break this down into three parts. The exhortation, the action, and the results. 
Paul introduces this section on young men with the word likewise. He simply means, I'm, I'm given this description. I gave it for the older men, the older women, the younger women. Now, young men, this is your turn. Pay attention. Likewise, something for you. This is the godly living that God requires for young men. Now, young men have unique attributes, and it really starts when, when they're boys. A friend of mine, a father, described the differences between his sons and his daughter this way. He said, anytime boys get an idea, it will become a game. Every game will become a competition, and every competition a blood sport. And that is just the progression that's going to happen. It's always going to end at this destination, blood sport, with any idea that they get. And see, that continues as the young men continue to grow. There's a, just something about them. There are these dangers of a young man's life. Dangers they must face. One of them is laziness. This is part of fallen humanity, unfortunately but it's also programmed by us in our homes. Young men these days are not taught hard work. Left to their own, young men will always choose to do nothing beneficial. They would rather indulge themselves than to serve others. Young men need to learn discipline. I remember my father telling me of his responsibility as a young man to get up early, to fire up the coal stove, to heat the home in the morning. If he didn't, then the entire family would wake up to a very cold home and no fire to make breakfast. It was a responsibility he had, and the chores were given down in the family, and young men learned responsibility uh, through that. But laziness is a danger that young men face. It's easy to do something else, to not be about what we should be about. Unfortunately, young men also face a very real danger of a decadent culture. I don't think I need to go into detail with that, but young men raised in a decadent culture will become accustomed to vice. I want you to hear this part. Familiarity with vice does not produce disgust. It produces attachment. Think about what young men are exposed to in our culture. Sexual promiscuity, pornography, violence, entertainment, materialism, hostility towards God. We must be very deliberate in our lives to guard against such things and to speak the truth against such evils. When we indulge ourselves in these vices, we become less and less disgusted by them and more and more attached to them. We need to carefully guard what we do, what we see, and what we hear. We have to be very deliberate. For parents, for your young sons, it's your responsibility to teach them that. And it's very difficult. I understand. Men also face the danger of general immaturity. As young men, lusts are often heightened. Ambition is strong. Impulsive behavior normative and habits are formed that can rarely be eliminated even in old age. 
Let's just call it being young and foolish. Years ago, when I was a young lieutenant at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota, my best friend up there, who was a co-pilot I trained with when we were learning how to fly B-52s together, he suggested that we ride bicycles from Minot, North Dakota to Bismarck, North Dakota, about 120 miles. Brilliant. Our plan was in one day, we're going to ride down there. We will spend the night in a hotel or something, go to the pool, have a great time. And the next day, his girlfriend would drive down with his truck, throw the bicycles in there and drive back up to, North, up to Minot. Uh, unfortunately, the only training that we did to prepare for that was to buy bicycles. <laughs> we didn't even own bicycles. And so... <laughs> we were not prepared. Let me tell you what. I mean, we took like a bottle of water each and Pop-Tarts. And that was, that's what was going to get us through this and the 120 miles down, not realizing that in August in North Dakota, it's a very hot south wind coming right in your face at about 35 miles an hour or more. And we made it about 35 miles towards Bismarck when we had been out of water for a while. And we're, we're starting to suffer, and we decided that, hey, we passed the gas station 10 miles back. It's time to reverse course and head on back. And we did, got some water at the gas station. With the wind at our back, we made it back in great time. But the whole time, all he's doing is talking about selling that bicycle that he just bought. And so, <laughs> yes, we were young and foolish. And by the way, I still have that bicycle of mine in my garage as a testament to my younger days. But, but young men can be impulsive, young and foolish. Fortunately, that only cost me a bicycle and some pride because we were wise enough to tell everybody in our squadron our great plan so that our failure would be known by all. But, um, and I actually hope that uh, maybe his boys are listening to this sermon later on and, and we'll know about that. And I'm glad to tell them more details uh, about that. But... Uh, but this, this attitude of, of young men is nothing new. We look at our culture today. We look at what we face today. We look at the struggles young men have. And when, like I said, young men, this, this is up to probably at least age 50. Young men struggle with these things. We have a few of the writings from what we call the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers were those church leaders who were trained by the apostles men such as Clement and Polycarp, trained by the apostles, and they led the church after the apostles had died. And they have some letters that they had written, and we have a few of their writings, and one of the common themes of the early church fathers was to young men. They counseled those young men. Listen to your leaders. You see, young men are prone to have brilliant ideas. The good idea fairy lands on their shoulders many times a day and tells them what to do. But they need to listen to the elders and listen to the men who are there to help them, to help them grow and to help them mature. They exhort them to listen to the leaders. You see, another danger of young men is believing they have figured it all out and that the older generation is missing, missing the mark. This is a common error for all people. 
we often focus on the here and now, neglecting those who have gone before. In fact, I don't know how old this was. There was a, a, a survey taken asking the question, who is the most influential man in the last 1,000 years and the most influential woman in the last 1,000 years in the whole earth? That's a long time, 1,000 years. Most influential man, most influential woman. And what came back in the survey were two people who are alive because that's all they think about. The here and the now. They don't look at, at what wisdom they have uh, in the past and what they can look to and learn. And young men, the older men were also once young men and maybe, just maybe, they've learned a thing or two along the way. There's great wisdom. And I would encourage the young men, find some of these older men. I'd encourage the younger men, go up to Earl Swain. Ask Earl, how has the scripture impacted your life? Earl's got a great history. He would love to tell you about how scripture has impacted his life, what Christ means to him. Young men, take advantage of that. The older men want to see you succeed because you are the future leaders of the church. Now, back to the text. Like I said, we've seen Paul's instruction to older men, older women, young women, and now young men. And he begins with an exhortation for self-control. Now, we've seen this before, this call to self-control. Paul already listed self-control as an attribute for the elders, for older men, and for younger women. He's going he's gonna to list it again now for younger men. He's going to list it, list it for all believers, too. So self-control is obviously important. Uh, a former pastor of mine from years ago once said, if we see something, a command in Scripture, and it's only there once, it's important. Once is enough. We need to do it. If we see something in Scripture two times, it's like God is trying to grab our attention and say, hey, listen, don't miss this. You need to do this. If we see something in Scripture three or more times, it's like our Heavenly Father is coming up to us, putting His loving arms around us and saying, my child, I know this is difficult. I know this isn't easy. But this is indeed what is best for you. And I will be with you. That is the promise that we have. When God tells us something so many times, this isn't easy for us. He's got to get through to us. But He is with us. We need to pay very close attention. Self-control is very difficult to master. Now, because Jared has preached three times on this already, he basically has broken down self-control like this. Emotional stability. In other words, don't be impulsive, hasty, foolish, or panic with great emotion. Be balanced. Number two, control over your thought life. We're going to go into that a lot more in a moment. Number three, putting every moment of your life in context of what God is doing in the greater story of redemption. Is God sovereign? Is God in control? Yes, absolutely. Therefore, 
I don't need to panic. I don't need to be tossed to and fro by the circumstances of my life. Number four, he advocates for constant evaluation of ourselves against the, the truths of Scripture and making adjustments when we see a disconnect. In other words, let's constantly be asking ourselves, constantly evaluating ourselves, how am I doing in the area of self-control? Where can I improve? When he spoke to the young women, he talked about it, theological seamstresses. Anytime they see something that needs to be mended or fixed or repaired, they do that in light of Scripture and what Scripture teaches. I also found some helpful ideas from a book that was written more than 100 years ago by a pastor trying to teach self-control. He lists various areas of our lives. Now, this is all before radio, television, and the Internet, and I think his head would explode now with all of the distractions and what we have today. But he calls it regulating our lives. Self-control is regulating our lives. And he says, number one, regulation of thought. Now, Jared has spoken of that too, but we're going to speak of it again because it is so important. Hear what this author says. I do love the words that he uses. As to the power to think, we know not which is most overwhelming, the grandeur of the ability or the awfulness of the responsibility. The endowment is itself a tie of kinship with the infinite, and, it exercise, and its exercise suggests in infinity and eternity. To think is to shape character and conduct. The mystic chambers where thought abides are the secret workshop of an unseen sculptor, chiseling living forms for a deathless future. Personality and influence are modeled there. Hence the injunction, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. You see what he's saying? The ability we have to think is amazing. It really is. Because we can think of all kinds of things. Man has now been to the moon because we thought of that. We figured out how to get there. We have amazing art. I, I am an engineer, so hey, I love the going to the moon thing. I love airplanes. I love the easy stuff. What's hard for me is art. How somebody can conceive of something so beautiful or so magnificent and just out of nothing make that appear. The creativity of the mind is indeed amazing. And as he says, though, it's kind of a, a tie to God. Because when we think, it shapes our character and our conduct. And this is where God, as Scripture says, by the renewing of your mind, shapes us. And shapes us for eternity, or as he calls it, a deathless future. A time in heaven with Christ forever and ever. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You getting that? Our thought life is so important. Take every thought captive. Self-control is not easy. And it's easy to let your mind wander. And I think that's why this pastor began with the thought life. Because that will get you into trouble. He says, conduct springs from character and character from thought. Do you see that? 
Our thought lives will determine our character and our character, our conduct. It begins with our thought life. God values purity of thought, yet we often forget this. You see, unguarded thoughts sooner or later find their way to the lips and to the outer life. Whatever is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, think on these things. Self-control demands that we take control of our thought life. He adds in regulation of affections. Now this is deeper than just emotions. It's the habitual bent that we have towards something. In other words, this is who we are deep down. So this isn't based off of a circumstance or a happening. This gets down into who we are. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul describes it as putting away such things as anger, wrath, malice. And as Christians, we are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. You see, that's who we are supposed to be as followers of Christ. Self-control means we take hold of even our deepest affections and we bring them into submission to Christ our Savior. Is that easy? No. But remember, God has promised He is with us. He knows this is for our good. This is the best for us. And He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us. Regulation of emotions. Now, Jared has covered this in depth, so I won't go into it too much. But to reiterate, we must not be tossed about by our own emotional responses to our circumstances in life. We must always interpret life by the God who holds all things in his loving, sovereign hands. So we don't have to panic. There is nothing that happens in our lives that God didn't know about and sovereignly decree. Nothing. If our Heavenly Father is in control, we can be steady, balanced, stable. We want to control our emotions. Next is regulation of speech. Self-control means that we watch our speech. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Our words must not be untruthful or harmful, profane, mocking, hasty, idle, or impure. Instead, our words should edify and build up one another. You see... We have to get control over our speech. We can't just let things slip. We can't speak one way around our buddies and a different way around others. We need to be genuine. We need to be consistent in that. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. That's what we should, should aspire to, that our words are words that are life-giving to others that our words are edifying, that our words build people up, that our words hold true to sound doctrine. Our words speak of Christ. I remember, now this was a number of years ago when we were in our former facilities and we were having our Monday, Thursday service and Good Friday service leading into Easter morning. We had a good crowd for Monday, Thursday service and and. 
the service was, was uh, very meaningful. Then we met on Good Friday. And on Good Friday, the service was simple. We simply walked through the events of Friday one by one and then reflected in prayer. And I remember when the service ended, most of the people stayed for about another 20 to 30 minutes and just continued in prayer. And our pastor, Bill, at the time spoke and he asked people, please, in reverence, do not speak while you're in the facility. Remain silent out of respect. And even when you enter the parking lot, if you must speak to someone, speak only of Christ. Do not speak of anything else until you've departed the facilities completely. Why? This was a solemn time and our words matter. And speaking of Christ was very, very appropriate at the time. Next is regulation of conduct. Godly conduct is marked by consistency, sincerity, grace, and love. How are we doing? Does your conduct tell the story of someone who believes Jesus is the Christ, the risen Lord? If so, do we act like him? 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from every form of evil. Godly conduct must also be discriminating. We often have to choose between the good and the best. 2 Peter 3.11 puts this in perspective. Knowing that this earth will one day pass away and since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. You see that our conduct is, is based off of the future. Knowing what the future holds, knowing the eternal state, how does that impact how we behave today? How should it impact how we behave today? We're called to self-control. This is so important. The author lists a few other things. Regulation of reading. And by that he meant learning. He talks about going to the library and being very discerning of the books that you choose to learn from. I guess we could expand that today to many other things, but we need to be discerning on what we put into our brains. We need to regulate our companionship. What does that mean? Who do you hang out with? What kind of people are influencing your lives? Are they godly men and women or not? Do you think that hanging out with ungodly people is going to bring them up or bring you down? What is the greater possibility in that? That doesn't mean we shun non-believers and whatever. We never spend time with them. But who are our closest friends? Who do we pal around with. Regulation of amusement. I like how he put that. Entertainment. But amusement. How do we spend our time amusing ourselves? Well, today, with radio, television, internet, and just all the kinds of entertainment culture that we have, what do we do? How do you watch that? Is it too easy to just come home, plop down in front of the television, and I could ask you the next day, what did you watch? I don't know. I was just there. I wasn't doing anything profitable. I was just there. 
How do we spend our time in entertainment? Habits, regulation of habits. Why? Because our habits will determine our destiny. So let's watch what we do. How do we behave? Get into the habit now, young men, of reading your scripture daily. Make that your habit. Spend time with the Lord daily. Make that your habit. Fathers, for your families, do you have family devotions? Make that your habit. Men, these habits will be what determines what we are later. If we don't do those things now, we won't do them later. We need to be self-controlled. We need to determine. We need to decide how are we going to live our lives. And finally, he talks about health. And so he says, regulate your health. And uh, it was kind of fun to read some of his lists, uh, how they thought the leading medical professions of the day, professionals of the day, 110 years ago, thought that you should have a healthy lifestyle. One of them I liked was only ever sleep on your right side. I don't understand that, but that's what they said. Leave your windows open all night was another one. Adults are not to drink milk was, a, was yet another one. I'm not going to advocate any of those, but basically he is telling us we need to exercise self-control over every area of our lives, including our health, watching what we eat, how we exercise, taking care of ourselves in that. Parents, what a great responsibility you have to raise your children and teach them to conform to holy standards. You exercise control now so that when they are older, they will conform to the holy standards on their own. Again, this is not easy. Even the apostle Paul said, I beat my body to bring it into submission. You get that? This is not easy. Please don't hear me saying, guys, this is easy. We can do this. No, this is a task. This is a lifelong task that we must be about. I beat my body to bring it into submission. Our loving Heavenly Father is putting His arms around us. Young men, moms and dads, He knows our fallen condition better than we know it ourselves. He provided a Savior and sent the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us. No, this is not easy. But our God is more than sufficient. He is able to do more than we can even imagine. Here at Christ Community, we trust Christ to do the impossible. Does anyone now feel like this is impossible to live a self-controlled life? We can trust Christ even in this area of our lives. Now Paul switches and he he directs his writing to Titus. So he said, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, but now show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. He's telling him to be an example Be the pattern for others to follow. Your life should be a template of what it means to live a godly, self-controlled life. See, we would call that hypocrisy otherwise. If we're telling someone to live like this and we live like that, we would be hypocrites. He is telling Titus, Titus, be 
that example. This applies to all of us, young men. Be that example. Exercise self-controlled lives. Live disciplined lives. Don't ask others to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. The New Testament provides multiple examples and verses about living lives as examples for others. In Hebrews 13, 17 tells us to follow the examples of the leaders over us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In Timothy, show yourself an example. He amplified this for Timothy by listing five categories in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Be an example in speech, whatever comes out of your mouth. By the way, men, this applies to more than just not saying bad things. Fathers, husbands, how you lead your family in prayer is how your children are going to learn to pray. Be an example in speech. How you interact with the waitress at a restaurant. How you interact with a neighbor in your neighborhood. Your speech, not just your words, your tone is what they're going to learn from. Be an example in speech. Be an example in conduct. Your lifestyle, your possessions, your free time. What does your family see about you? How do you spend your free time? How do you treat your possessions? With an open hand or closed fist? In love, are you an example of self-sacrificing service on behalf of others? That's what God has called us to. Now, I know that there are a number of men in this, in this body who are great servants, who are just amazing at what they do. But we're all called to, to self-sacrifice to serve others, count others better than ourselves. In faith, and, and what this means is faithfulness, are you uncompromising from start to finish? How's your life? Look at your life. Do you live a life that does not compromise on anything? And purity. This would certainly be sexual purity on the inside and outside, but also purity in how you deal with others. You know, I, I watched that show, and I forget even the name of it. It's about one of those... Um, Pawn Stars shows. And in it, the guy was traveling somewhere, the owner, and he came to this place and uh, he saw something there and they had a really cheap price on it, but he knew the value of it. Instead of buying it for the cheap price and then reselling it and making a lot of money, he said, look, I, I can't do that. You've got the wrong price on this. You, you, need, to, you need to charge more. This is, this is more valuable than what you know. On another time, a woman came in with something that she wanted $300 for, and he said, no, this is valued about $15,000. He could have bought it from her for $300, turned and sold it for $15,000, and made a little bit of profit on that. But instead, his integrity was, no, I can't do that. And yet, I've read about Christians 
who will take advantage of others who don't know the value of something. You know, I, I've enjoyed uh, my study of the, of the scriptures and the history of the Bible. And I've read books by folks who've talked about their collections and how they saw something that the person selling it didn't know the value and I was able to get it for a good price. Is that the life that we're supposed to have? Here it is, the, the pawn star showing integrity, the Christian not showing integrity. Purity, how do we treat others in all areas? We are to be an example of good works. This is a very broad category for a reason. First, good means inherently good. Righteous, noble, morally excellent. It is not some form of, of cosmetic superficial goodness. So be an example in a whole range of works and deeds that could be called righteous. There should be a pattern in your life that shows up in everything you do. Now, let me be very, very clear on something here. I don't want anyone to hear anything different on this. We do not believe or hold to works-based salvation at all. Okay? And I don't think anyone here does, but I want to be very clear on that. No one, and I mean no one, is saved by their works. Works don't get you into heaven at all. We are saved by grace through faith. It is only because we are saved that we can do good works. Even more, we were, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So just to make sure that I'm very clear, this is the order of events. First, we're saved by grace through faith, which is a gift of God itself. Then and only then are we able to do good works. But we are called to do good works. In fact, when we look at this, this book of Titus, good works comes up more than once. What's that telling us? Well, number one, it's given in the negative several times. When he talks about the false teachers, he says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That's a negative. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So in the negative, the false teachers cannot do good works. But in the positive, he calls here, young men, be about good works. In chapter 3, we're told to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Uh, and then again, before the end, um, it says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So we are called to good works. What does that mean? Well, it certainly means helping the poor and the needy. We are called to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit prisoners in prison. We must care for orphans and for widows according to Scripture. But it also means how you behave at work or in school. It's every aspect of your life. Martin Luther tried to explain this by saying, whoever wishes to identify and perform good works need only to learn God's commandments. Accordingly, Christ says, if you want to be saved, then keep the commandments. Our knowledge of good works must derive from God's commandments and not from the appearance, magnitude, or quantity of the deeds themselves, nor from human opinion, laws, or dealings. That's the end of the quote from Martin Luther. So Luther is saying, hey, we've got a whole book about commandments, about how to do good works. That's what we need to do. We need to be about those. 
Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, to your word. You get that? You're going to have to know scripture if you're going to do the good works. Once again, scripture is coming first. That we need to know that. Second Timothy says, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It should be no surprise that good works flow down from Scripture. We are also called to be examples in our speech. Three criteria are presented. Integrity, which in this case is purity of doctrine. Dignity, which is seriousness. And then sound speech, which is healthy, life-giving, edifying, appropriate Speech that is beyond reproach. We must always speak the truth. I'm afraid that'll be more and more difficult as Christianity is mocked here in the United States. It may even one day become illegal. Today, the label of hate speech is attached to ideas that people disagree with. Yet we are called to speak the truth of Scripture, whether people like it or not. Christians will look for ways to make it more palatable to the culture, but that will always fail will end up distorting the truth. Our job isn't to try to make the word of God more relevant to someone by couching it in popular culture. The gospel of Jesus Christ is countercultural. As one of my professors said in a class one day, we don't make scripture relevant. Scripture is relevant. We are responsible to preach it. Our message can be dis- distorted if we don't approach it with dignity and seriousness. Young men tend to be frivolous. I remember a youth pastor teaching a message and he was getting to the seriousness of the message. He was aiming for transformed lives. And the group had gotten silent and people were really paying attention to what he's saying and he's, and he's making his point. And right at the height of all this, one of the young men cracked a joke that the people around him all started laughing and it distracted the rest of the group. Right there. Young men need to learn to think seriously or with dignity. That doesn't mean we never laugh or have fun. There is always a season for laughter. But it does mean that there are serious things and we need to be serious when we're discussing them and dealing with them. Finally, our day-to-day speech must always be edifying. It must be above reproach. Do your words give life? Do people want to be around you because they know they'll be better off for it? Are your words wholesome, leading people to Christ? This is the example we are supposed to set for others. When we live like this, young men, see what happens. God is not put to shame. We can silence the critics of our faith and even cause them to be ashamed when we criticize Christian when they criticize Christianity. Again, Apostle Paul says, "Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us." Okay, it seems like a long way off for us, or even. 
maybe a whole different world that that would happen. But here's what that does mean. First, our godly conduct and speech may bring some of these opponents, some of these critics to repentance. God can use that in our lives for them to come to repentance. We pray that that happens. But even if it doesn't and they go on mocking, their mocking words will have no effect on others who will see our behavior and our lives and give glory to God who's in heaven. Do you see that? There, there are going to be people who mock and criticize. Some may be saved by our, by our conduct, by our example. However, when we live godly lives like that and they are mocking us before others, the others won't take their words to heart because they will see our lives match with what we're saying. I'd like to close by going back to the beginning of this passage. It says, likewise, urge the younger men. Young men, I urge you. I implore you. I exhort you. I even beseech you to do so. You see, God is not calling us to follow a list of rules. He is not calling us to line up and just to be a follower like, like marching soldiers. He is calling us to lead men. We must lead and we lead by example. Men, each one of us in here, our lives need to be so molded to the life of Christ. We must be so Christ-like in our conduct, in our behavior, in our speech, and even in our thought life that others will follow us because we are following Christ so closely. Men, you're called to lead. This is not a list of rules. I don't want you to look at this and say, that self-control thing is too difficult. I can't do that. No, you can't. Christ can. He can transform you to be that disciple. Young men, lead. I call on you. I urge you. Take this to heart. Be the man of God that God has called us to be. We are called to let our light shine in this darkened world. We are called to lead. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this instruction to the young men. And we pray that, it might be, that we might be faithful as a very important part of your church and to provide the church's leadership in the present and the future. We pray, O oh God, that you'll give us strength to be what we need to be and help us to realize that the way in which we win the world is not by finding out what they want, by, but by demonstrating to them how utterly unlike them we are. Namely, to show them we have what they don't have, a saving God and a transformed life. Don't let us be like the world. Let the world want to be like us. Give us, Father, the strength of the Spirit as young men to live in a way you want us to live in order that your word would be honored, your name exalted, and even our opponents 
shamed into repentance for the Savior's sake. And it's in his name that we ask all of this. Amen.